All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. This is Secrets of the Bible. I have muted everybody so we have a clean background for the recording. This is Secrets of the Bible, Lesson 5. You have picked a good night to join the class. And I know you're, you're in the class, but I'm just saying it's a really good night to be studying some Torah because what we have tonight in store for you is... Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to visualize this for you, right? Here's the chart. Here's the class. In other words, this class is off the charts. It's off the charts good. If you thought last week was amazing, you ain't seen nothing yet. All right, tonight, I'll tell you the focus in a second. So Moses says to God, Moses says to God, God, I have a headache. What does Moses say? Take two tablets and call me in the morning. Today's discussion, I know, I know, it hurts me more than it hurts you. Oh, sorry, Jerry, go ahead. I missed it. I, I did. You missed it. I missed I talked over it. Got to do it again. There we go. All right. So tonight, the topic is the sin of the golden calf and the breaking of the tablets. I told you this course was going to be called Secrets of the Bible. And I told you we're going to be looking at the greatest questions, the biggest stories, the biggest scandals, the biggest controversies, the most misunderstood stories of the Torah. We dealt, we've dealt with in this course so far the sin of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, Eitzadat Tovarah. We've talked about what Adam and Eve did. We talked about Noah and the great flood. We talked about um, other amazing stories. But tonight we talk about the epic failure and I'm using a strong word, and it, you, we may have to revisit that word later, but the apparent epic failure that is the sin of the golden calf. You've all seen the movie, right? I mean, we've all seen the Ten Commandments, right? Literally, Charlton Heston comes down the mountain with the tablets, right? Remember those epic words? I'm paraphrasing. It's been a while. Those who will not live by the law or something shall die by the law. Smashes the, the, the tablets down. The big dramatic scene, right? So... So let's recap the story, basically. We're going to do a deep dive inside. Yeah, the Jews are in Egypt. They're liberated from Egypt um, uh, with the ten plagues and the splitting of the sea. They count down the days or count up the days in anticipation for that moment at Sinai. They stand at the foot of Mount Sinai. They hear God's voice um, um, express the Ten Commandments. They're blown away by the experience. And then, as you and I know, 40 days later... What are they doing? Cut to the next scene. And they're dancing the horror. They're dancing the horror around a golden calf. And what are they saying? This is the God. They just made this golden calf, mind you. This is the God that took us out of Egypt. And you're thinking, and I'm thinking, are you kidding me? Have you not read this story? <laughs> Did you not just live through this? What are you doing? What is happening here? How is this possible? So tonight, we look at the wild, and I'm going to say woolly because I feel like those two always go together, the wild and woolly story of the Chet HaEgel, the sin of the golden calf, and the shattering of the tablets. I cannot tell you how many times I've been asked about the story. Like, how could it happen? How is it possible? Tonight, we are going to explore a, an incredible perspective from the mystical teachings of Judaism. It's actually going to draw from the entire gamut of Jewish thought, from scripture to Medrash to Talmud 
to Jewish philosophy, as well as Kabbalah. It's going to run the entire spectrum of Jewish thought. And we're going to first deconstruct the story and then put it back together in an incredible way. Be prepared to rethink everything you know about this shocking moment in Jewish history. All right, and by the way, not only are we going to gain insight into an ancient story that happened 3,300 years ago, we're going to gain profound insight into the drama of our lives today, how to be a more effective and healthier human being in 2020, if anyone's timestamping this, November 24th, 2020. All right, so once again, we're going to have several components of this class and we have a bit of a structure that we've, uh, we've built up that, that we're following. We tell the story. We ask questions. We share some Kabbalistic insights. We give answers to the questions. And we present some lessons to take away. Five steps. This is our five-step, five-act class. All right, let's begin. We have, it's, it's going to be an incredible class. Again, I'm glad that you're here with me. I'm very thankful and grateful for you being here with me tonight. Remember... I always try to keep these classes interactive. I know that right now y'all are muted, but at any point in time, drop something into the chat or unmute yourself. Even better, unmute yourself, jump in with a question, a comment, you know, a clarification. Definitely want this to be a conversation, and I will prompt it with questions that I ask you. All right, before we explore the story of the breaking of the, uh, the, the, the sin of the golden calf and the breaking of the tablets, let's first read about the story that is a precursor to that, which is the story of what happened at Mount Sinai. Because you don't have, right, there's no, you don't have a, a, a golden calf without what happens first, which is revelation at Sinai. We're going to be reading three stories from the biblical script. This is part one of the, or three parts of the story. This is part one, revelation at Sinai. Once again, I'm going to do the reading. It's a long reading. I'll do the reading. But I want you to think of questions or insights as I'm reading. Hold them in your head. And as soon as I'm done, I'm going to turn to you and say questions, comments, and open the floor. All right? So we're going to begin with text number one. You can find this. You know what? I'm going to share my screen to make it easier. Uh, you all should have a copy of the book. Nonetheless, I find this to be easy, at least easy for me. So. Let's do this. Lesson five, broken tablets, text number one. So in your books, it's page 142. I'm going to make this larger so that I can see it, and that may help for you as well. Okay, here we go. Exodus 19. Um, this is straight from the text. They arrive at Mount Sinai. In the third month of the children of Israel's exodus from the land of Egypt, on this day, they arrived in the Sinai desert, and Israel encamped there opposite the mountain. Let's continue with the narrative. Moses ascended to God, and God called to him from the mountain to say, So shall you say to the house of Jacob, the women, and tell the children of Israel, the men, You have seen what I did to Egypt. I carried you on the wings of eagles and brought you to me. And now if you will listen to my voice and keep my covenant, you will be my own treasure from among, the, from among all peoples. You will be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. All right, we continue with the narrative. Moses came and called the elders of Israel, and he placed before them all these words. And all the people replied in unison, and they said to the offer of get receiving the law, 
All that God has spoken, we will do. The people said, we are in it. Let's continue. It was on the third day of preparation when it was morning. There was thunder and lightning and a thick cloud upon the mountain. And the sound of the shofar exceedingly strong. Moses brought the people out from the camp toward God and they stood beneath the mountain. God descended upon Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. All of this thus far has been a discussion or the details in Torah about the days preceding and leading up to that epic moment of the giving of the Torah at Sinai and divine revelation. This happens right now in this narrative, the Ten Commandments. We continue. God spoke all these words to say, I am, your God, I am God, your God, who took you out from the land of Egypt, from the house of slavery. Do not have any other gods before me. Do not make for yourselves a graven form or, or, or an image of anything in the heaven above or on the earth below. Do not bow to them and do not serve them. Do not take the name of God, your God, in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to sanctify it. Honor your father and your mother. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness against your fellow. Do not covet anything that is your fellow's. That, my friends, is the Ten Commandments. Let's continue. And all the people saw the sounds and the torches and the sound of the shofar and the smoking mountain. Not the smoky mountains. That's something else. This, that's, that's behind Jerry. I'm joking. And the smoking mountain. And the people saw and trembled, and they stood from afar. Let's continue. We're almost done with this first reading. And to Moses, God said, come up to God. Moses entered within the cloud, and he ascended the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. When he had finished speaking with him, Moses, on Mount Sinai, God gave to Moses the two tablets of the Testament, tablets of stone inscribed by the finger of of God. So again, this is the first part of our story. Part one of our story, this is the experience at Mount Sinai. We just detailed from the Torah text itself, the moment they encamped and settled at the foot of Mount Sinai, the days of preparation, the various, not everything, it's, it's, it's edited here for sake of, uh, of, of, of time and space, um, but we got the essentials. They got some essential um, instruction and, and uh, some central inspiration. And then we have the experience of the revelation at Sinai and the giving of the Ten Commandments. Um, God speaking that to the Jewish people. All right, I'm pausing here in the narrative and opening up the floor, so to speak. Questions or comments, jump in, unmute, fire away. I have a question. Mark. Hearing the Ten Commandments read, how many did the children of Israel break with the golden calf? Oh, yeah, I was actually going to mention that. When, when, I was going to, when we were going to do this story, and we're going to do the story, read it inside of the golden calf, I was going to then ask, by the way, how many of these did they break? How many of the commandments did they break with this, uh, with this golden calf business? But you know what? You mentioned it now, so let's run. I mean, look, I am the Lord your God. Uh, yeah, they broke that because they said this is the God. Um, don't have any other gods? Broke that. Do not worship any other God? Yeah, broke that. Do not take God's name in vain? They literally declared a golden calf God. I mean, maybe there's another meaning of taking God's name in vain. But you know what? That's kind of... I'm going to go with the approach that also violates that. I'm with you on the, on the violation of four. I'm, I'm thinking a, a, good, a solid, 
at least three, possibly four of the ten, and that's a good percentage. I mean, if it's baseball and you're batting like between three and four hundred, I mean, this is Ted Williams ter- territory. This is like next level stuff. I'm just saying, but this is not a good thing, right? That's yes. All right. Next, um, who else has got something? Jay, go ahead. I have uh, many questions or comments. So the first one that really stood out was before that, when they stood beneath the mountain. So talking about the Medrash and Hashem held the mountain over the people. Yes. That's one comment. The other comment is, this is a classic, God spoke the words, I am the Lord your God. Why not, why not, I'm the Lord your God that created everything in the oh. beginning. Why oh. does he start, you know, with that? Why not? I did everything. Why not present that? Excellent. Why introduce himself as the one who took you out of Egypt? Why not? I mean, on God's resume, if God is, is reading a section of the resume, you would think the section of the resume to cite is uh, all of this stuff. Yeah, that was me. <laughs> I mean, the Exodus was nice, but it doesn't compare to, I mean, that's, you know, miracles are in Kabbalah. It says a miracle is transforming one thing into another thing. But creation is transforming nothing into something. So nothing to something is a bigger party trick than something into something. Right? You with me? All right. That's what Kabbalah says. Good question. Um, Adina Malka, yes. I got you. Um, I, I'm not sure about why they say 40 days and 40 nights. I mean, our day begins at night. Mm. Uh, why, why did he say 40 days and 40 nights? It's an excellent question. I think my understanding, it's a good question, and there might be a, um, a, a deeper angle on it. My first reaction, or my first thought is, just emphasizing that it was 40 full days, which is where the people made a mistake, because they thought, come the morning of day 40, oh, wait, wait, what is it? Uh, um, the idea is, hold on, let, let me get this straight in my head. The mistake with the count, the reason why, and we're not up there yet to the, to the sin of the golden calf, but the counting error that they, that they made, they knew it was going to be 40 days, but they were a day off. Why? Because Moses went up during the day, and they counted that as day one, but since it didn't include the night before, as you're saying, it didn't include the full day, which starts the night before, so that wasn't actually day one, that was day zero. The next, that night and the next day would have been day one. So I, I'm with you that it might have been more accurate if it said 40 nights and 40 days, but I think it means 40 full units, which is where they were off because it was 39 and a half units. And then they're like, well, Moses is not coming back. Let's party with the calf. And that was, that was a problem. So that's my understanding. Um, Dr. Maxi, go ahead. So, so my question is a follow-up to that. What's the significance of 40? Why wasn't it 30? Oh, Why wasn't ho, ho. it 35? Why wasn't it 16? Excellent. Why wasn't it 15? Excellent. If it was Hashem at work, why couldn't it have been one day? Excellent, excellent, excellent. If God's the teacher, Moses the student, so it takes 40 days. Who says? Why 40? By the way, where else? Uh, David's got something in the chat. What's with 40? Where do we have 40? You guys know 40. We had 40 in a previous session. Remember? Remember? What happened? For, what was Noah. Yes. 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 You say no. I say yes. I'm kidding. You said Noah. Yes. Noah, the rain, the flood, the rains were raining, which is redundant. It rained, there you go, for 40 days and 40 nights. The same geshaft, the same business. And by the way, I didn't mention in that, I, don't, I think I missed it in that class. What's the, what's the significance of 40? It says 40. Oh, 
40 saw is the amount of a mikvah. I think we did talk about that. And it's the minimum amount of, of, of water in a mikvah. And 40 also represents the... Um, what is 40? 40 is connected with the idea of rebirth or birth. And so we have this notion of... And, and 40 is significant in birth, and I'm, I, I don't want to misquote the context. I would have to look up the Talmud again. But there's something about conception and the, the fetus gaining some definition, something about 40 days, a 40-day stage, where things are, are, are somewhat defined and somewhat set. I believe that there is a notion of until 40 days, and maybe somebody wants to Google and fact-check me, I believe up until 40 days the Talmud says... Um, that you can pray for the gender of the child after 40 days, it's considered to be a prayer for not. Because after 40 days, the definition is already set. But before... That's correct. Okay. That's correct. Thank you. We got, we got a fact checker. We got... And, and my mom is fact checking. That's it. Now, you might think it's an inside job. Of course your mother's going to sit in a thumbs up it. And that, that might be true. But nonetheless, we did get, we did get some fact checks. So here's the deal. Um, until 40 days, you can pray for the gender after, and it was, you're, you're, you know, you can pray that you wanted this, uh, a boy or a girl or whatever. But after 40 days, we don't do that. Why? Because, after conception, because it's already set. And I believe medically there is something about the 40-day stage. Um, 42 days is how many weeks? Six weeks? It's about the six-week time period after conception that things begin um, taking definition the embryo, etc. Again, I'm not a doctor, but that I believe that I once Googled it, and Dr. Google confirmed what Rabbi Google said. I'm kidding. Dr. Google confirmed what the Talmud says about something along those lines. Anyway, 40 days is significant, um, so it's an excellent question. Both are excellent questions and points, and, but, but hold that concept. So what does it mean, though? Hold it, and we'll see how it plays out um, throughout the lesson. Uh, let's see. Any other? Hold on one second. Any others want to ask? Well, Mark already asked. Yeah, I, I have a question. Yeah, yeah. Um, go ahead. So the so if when uh, Moshe went up to Har Sinai, he came down with the Ten Commandments. When was like the rest of the Torah written? You know. Good. Excellent question. Excellent question. So I'm going to give you a little bit of a quick overview, and then we're going to jump back into the story because we have a lot of story to get to and a lot of questions and answers in Kabbalah. So here's, here's the short of it. At Sinai, on, this, on, the, on the day of the revelation at Sinai, God delivered, or God, they, the people experienced revelation, and they, they heard the Ten Commandments. That's what happened on that day. Um, after that, Moses goes up, 40 days, 40 nights, gets more details, gets more, more of the laws. He comes back down with more information in his head, Maybe he took some notes also. And he also, yeah, I believe he started writing, writing down more stuff in a scroll. And he comes down with the tablets which contain the original Ten Commandments that were said 40 days prior. Well, he breaks that. Spoiler alert, we're going to read that soon. He breaks it. And then the rest of Torah that wasn't communicated either in the Ten Commandments or in those original 40 days and 40 nights was um, communicated subsequently throughout the 40 years, again 40, interesting, 40 years in the desert. So, Throughout the 40 years in the Midbar, God continues to communicate with Moses. There are laws that come up based on questions that people have, and Moses consults with God. So that kind of rolls out. But a lot of Torah 
was communicated by God to Moses in those original 40 days, 40 nights on the mountain. Whatever wasn't was subsequently rolled out afterwards. Okay, but excellent question. That's the way the Talmud explains the process. Now, let's continue with the next part of the story. Okay, the next part. Oh, actually, sorry. Before we do that, I need to mention one very important point. This story that we just read, Revelation at Sinai, that story is, according to our tradition, the most epic moment in all human history. Why? I'm going to give you two reasons. Quickly, two reasons. Number one, from a theological perspective, never before and never since has there ever been recorded and reported or reported an event of mass divine revelation. I'll say it again. Never in human history before or after has it ever been reported an incident of, the, of mass divine revelation. When I say mass, I'm referring to the number of people. There were over 2 million Jews that were encamped at the foot of Mount Sinai. How do I know this? Because the census that happened at that time reports that there were 600,000 men between the ages of 20 and 60. And you would imagine there would be a similar amount of women between 20 and 60. That makes 1.2 million. Plus children below 20, boys and girls. Plus the, the, those that were older than 60, men and women. So between everything, you have at least 2 million people. 2 million people experiencing and reporting the same divine revelation. It's not a time to get into the, significant, the full measure of that significance. But if you look at other reports of divine revelation or prophecy, it always is reported by one or two people. This is radically different and highly significant, as I will share with you right now. Let's take a look at the Kuzari. This is a book of philosophy. Rabbi Yehuda Levi wrote this. Take a look at this next text. Text number, no, not text number two. Text number three. All right, I'm going to read this. Moses, the first Jewish leader, was not like them, the founders of other religions, because he brought the entire people to stand at Mount Sinai for them to see with their own eyes, each in accordance with their own ability, the revelation that he saw. As the verse states, they saw the God of Israel. They all could affirm to each other what they saw and heard. This removed from the heart of the nation the terrible suspicion. Perhaps all of this is just the claim of a few individuals that prophecy came to them. For it is not possible to create a conspiracy in full sight of the masses. Again, I, we don't have time to explore this. I, did, I once did a class that took this paragraph right here, and we did 90 minutes to explain this paragraph. Unfortunately, or it is what it is, the reality is we don't have time to do a deep dive into this paragraph. But here's the point that I want you and I to focus on for the moment before we move on to the next point. And that is, the moment at Sinai was so significant because it served as a moment in history where the people did not have to rely on the word of a prophet saying, God spoke to me and this is what God said. Rather, they saw with their own eyes. And they experienced it. They heard it with their own ears. They had their own experience. And that's why I said the revelation at Sinai, the most epic moment in history. I want to share with you one other reason why I say that it's the most epic moment in, in, in human history. And that goes to the notion of seeing. So you know the phrase, and, and please finish this, this statement off for me by unmuting yourself and jumping in. I'm going to start the phrase. It's a three-word phrase. And please finish the last word. Seeing, 
you're, you're too fast. David, what can I say? You're the Usain Bolt of, uh, of, of, of fill-in-the-blank uh, questions here, right? Seeing is believing, right? You preempted me. Believing is seeing. Seeing is believing. What does it mean seeing is believing? How do you understand seeing is believing? You know, I'm not anybody. How do you guys understand seeing is believing? Jump in. What does that mean? Anybody? Adina Malka. Your eyes could fool you. I mean, like they say, you know, witnesses to a crime, like 20 witnesses will all say they saw something different. You're explaining why seeing is not believing, but that wasn't my question. My question is, I understand you have, you're taking issue with the statement, but before we take issue, let's explain the statement. Why might one argue, right, that seeing is believing? Why might one argue seeing is believing? It's right there in front of you. It's right there in front of you. What else? Good. Well, so like how you we said perceive to the me. world. How we perceive the world. Good. What else? So witness. Witness. Okay, Joy, go ahead. All right, so if you told me it's raining and I can go to my window and I look outside and I see rain, then I believe you because what you said and I open my, my window or my curtains and I see what you said. So I, I, I love the example that you gave and I'm going to use it right now because it's perfect. You ready? You're in a locked room. Okay, that sounds weird. You're in a room inside your house and you can't hear what's going on outside. You can't see what's going on outside. All right, good. Somebody comes to you and says, wow, it's, it's a big storm out there. Stop, freeze everything. Here's my question. Do you know that it's raining? No, how do you know? You didn't see it. You didn't see it. You didn't see it. Now, if you trust that person, okay. But what if they like making jokes? What if they thought, what if they made a mistake? You have no idea. You know why? Because you heard it. You didn't see it. Seeing is believing. Hearing is maybe. Hearing is a perhaps. Hearing is uh, F sharp, perhaps, maybe, possible, possibly. Seeing is believing. If you see, if you see it, you know it to be true. Now, somebody else might not believe you, because that's, but that's because you told it to them and they heard it. So you saw it, right? You're driving down the country road. Country road, take me home. You're driving down the road, and in front of you hovers a UFO, and the beams shine down. You see it. You know it to be true. You tell all your friends they think you're Mashuga. By the way, this is not me wading into the question, are, are UFO, UFOs real or not? This is not me doing that. I'm just saying, theoretically, if that was you, you would know it, but others might not believe it. What about magic? Ah, oh, and that's the same question as Adina Malka. Can we be fooled by our eyes? The answer is absolutely yes. We can be deceived by our eyes. However, the level of deception or the level of certainty, ah, oh, the whole point is like this. The deception is only possible because we take our eyes so seriously. You can't, it's harder to be deceived by your ears because you're anyway skeptical about what you hear. You hear something, one person reports to you, you're like, yeah, maybe until I hear something else. Let me, let me corroborate with somebody else. But when you see it, that's what actually sets up the deception because you take it so seriously because seeing is believing. What's my point? My point is not that everything you see means that it's 100% MS, 100% true. It's possible that it's not, right? 
cue up magic, cue, uh, you know, uh, um, anything that's, uh, what do they have now? These fake videos that you can create using computer, you know, you run faces in and you can create, uh, create things that never happen. So there, there is obviously, or maybe not obviously, it's important to mention, there, there is a risk when we use our eyes. However, relative to, to hearing, seeing is a, a much higher degree of certainty. And so what's my point? My point is what happened at Sinai is not just that they heard the Ten Commandments, but if you look at the verses that we read in text one, it repeatedly says they saw, they saw, they saw. And moreover, there's a weird phrase, very strange phrase. I'm going to share my screen again with you because sharing is caring. Take a look at line 46. How do I, how do I highlight this for you? I don't know that I can. I can't. I'm going to wave my hand in rapid motion around 46 in the middle of the page. And all after Sinai, it says, the Torah reports, and all the people saw the sounds, saw the sounds. Now, I read it, and I was wondering if anybody would notice it. No one asked. Maybe you didn't notice it. Maybe you did. All the people saw the sounds. What does that mean? They saw musical notes. How do you see sounds? What does that actually mean? Moreover, I want to share with you a statement from the Talmud. Sorry, from the Medrash, Mechilta, Rabbi Akiva. This is Rabbi Akiva, although he's not quoted here. Trust me. Oh, now you have to trust me because you're hearing me say it. You didn't see it for yourself. But Rabbi Akiva is the author of text four. You see what I just did there? Text four. Rabbi Akiva says, what happened at Sinai? They saw what is normally heard, and they heard what is normally seen. And, 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 and now you're going to tell me, ah, oh, further proof that they consumed from the mushrooms. Yeah, psychedelic experience. They were seeing sounds and hearing sights. Everything was mixed up. They had a, what a trip. But the way Kabbalah explains it is, uh, of course, chas v'sham, God forbid to say such a thing. On the contrary, it expresses the true depth of what happened. And I'm going to share with you quickly to make the point, and then we're going to move on to the next part of the story. What is seeing and hearing? Seeing represents what we know to be true, and hearing is what we heard about and what we think might be true. Hearing, there's still skepticism. Seeing is believing. Good. That's the general distinction. If I gave you two more phrases and I asked you to align them to seeing or hearing, what would you do? I'm going to give you two words. Spirituality and materialism. Right? The physical and the spiritual. Or I, I reverse the order, sorry. Spiritual and physical. Which one would you associate with spiritual and which one with physical? Is spiritual seeing or is spiritual hearing? Is physical seeing or is physical hearing? What do you think? The physical stuff in this world, do you hear about or do you see with your own eyes? Vision. You see it. You see it. And what about the spiritual stuff in this world? What about God and spirituality? You see it or you hear about it? You hear about it, right? The difference is, this is what Kabbalah says, we hear about God. Right? God's in the books. You study about God. You have to meditate on God. You find clues somewhere about God. But God is still in the level of hearing. But the table right in front of you, the chair that you're sitting on, the room that you're in, the roof over your head, no one has to tell you about. You don't have to believe any scholar. You don't have to trust any book. You don't have to meditate at any length to know of the thing, the physical thing right in front of you, the computer screen or the phone right in front of you. You know, to be, you, you know with certainty because you can see it. In our reality, in our physical reality, what we see is the physical and what we hear about is the spiritual. But not at Sinai. 
At Mount Sinai, they saw what's normally heard. At Mount Sinai, they saw with their own eyes the spiritual realm that's normally an enigma, normally hidden, normally concealed from sight. They saw the reality at Sinai, and they heard what's normally seen. All the gashmiut, all the physical stuff, the cheesecake and the sushi was a rumor at Mount Sinai. Yeah, some people enjoy it. What's sushi? Who knows? Not right now. Are you with me on this? We call that an epiphany. They had a spiritual epiphany at Mount Sinai where God and godliness and spirituality and Torah and Ten Commandments, it was true. How true? On the level of sight. They knew it because they saw it. They saw the sounds. They didn't just hear God's voice. They saw it. It was true. So, all of this is me explaining why I said that Sinai... What happened at Sinai 3,332 years ago was the most epic moment in human history. Why? Number one, mass divine revelation. And number two, they saw the divine. They saw what is usually only studied or explored in other ways. They saw it with their own eyes. They perceived it and they knew it to be true. All of which makes what happens next all the more not understandable. Because if you have everybody perceiving God and the truth of God on a level of sight, what doesn't make sense? Help me out here. What part of the story does not make sense? It's the theme of today's class, by the way. Yeah? What doesn't make sense? I'm asking. Why they worship the calf? How could they worship the calf? If they just heard Moses tell them, by the way, God doesn't want you to do this, that, or the other. All right. All right. Still not right, but... They heard it, so they weren't sure, whatever. But this is everybody at Sinai, divine revelation, seeing what's normally heard. They saw God. And, 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 and then what happens next? That doesn't make any sense. Let's read it inside. Let's see what's going on. All right, let's read the story of the sin of the golden calf. Here we go. Text number six, Exodus 32. I'm going to read. The people saw that Moses delayed in coming down from the mountain. We talked about that before. And the people massed upon Aaron, the brother of Moses. And they said to Aaron, Arise, make us a God who will go before us. For this man Moses who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Aaron said to them as a stalling tactic, Remove the golden rings that are on the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. He believed, I'm giving a little bit of commentary here, that they would never be able to gather the jewelry in time, and by that time Moses would be back. He was trying to stall them. He took them from their hand, and he formed it with a graving tool, and he made it into a molten calf. Well, he didn't really make it. He threw it into the fire, and it kind of emerged like that. And they said, the people said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. I mentioned that before. They arose early in the, mor- early in the morrow and they offered up burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink and they got up to make merry. Which, according to the commentaries, making merry includes all sorts of things that we do not want to get into in a PG-13 class. Next, Moses breaks the tablets. And now you're curious. Moses breaks the tablets. What happens next is God tells Moses, you might want to go down the mountain and check in on on your peeps. 
Moses turned and went down from the mountain, and the two tablets of the testament were in his hand. The tablets were the handiwork of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. And it was when he drew closer to the camp, and he saw the calf and the dances. You wonder where the horror came from. They were dancing. Moses' anger was kindled, and he threw. How awkward that the tablets were kindled. Joking. All right. Moses' anger was kindled, and he threw the tablets from his hands, and he broke them beneath the mountain. This is the story from the original, from the Torah, from the verses, translated into English, the story of the sin of the golden calf and the smashing of the tablets. So I turn to you once, once more and I ask you, what are your questions on this story? What are your questions on this story? I have a question. I have more than one, but what are your questions? Ray. Ray, go ahead. Oh, hold on, Ray, you're still muted. I can see you, so I, I, I know you, but I can't, uh, I can't hear you. Go. Um, okay, my question is maybe something that hasn't happened yet, but it's um, the people that participated were punished. Um, Aaron, you're not supposed to make any graven images. You're not supposed... Aaron, I know he didn't expect them to be able to get the gold, but they got it. And right. so he was culpable too. Yeah, you know? yeah. on some level he participated in it, although his intention was not to make an idol that would be worshipped. He threw it to the fire and somehow, some way, through a very complicated story that we don't have time to get into, it emerged as a calf. But yes, the Torah definitely ascribes some measure of participation on behalf of Aaron, but the way our sages understand it, based on the fact that Aaron was not punished for the sin, for the sin of the golden calf, indicates that his intention was never to create an idol or to be part of this mob. On the contrary, he was trying to stall them and just things got out of hand a little too quickly for, uh, for his ability to stop it. But excellent question. It's a question that the commentaries deal, de deal with. It would pull, pull us a little too far, off, too far off track to jump into it, but I'm giving you the short, the short of it. Um, who else? Adina Malka, you had a, you had a question? Yeah. Um, I, remind me, I, I can't quite um, remember, where, were the, where did Moses say, you know, hang on, folks, it'll take me 40 days, I'll be back. I mean, where did he tell them it would take me 40 days? Yes. Forty. Yeah, yeah, we don't have the full, the full uh, um, um, Torah text here. But yeah, he basically gave the heads up to the people and they counted, they were off by a day. Yeah. Um, let's, go, let's go with Mindy. Mindy, go ahead. Uh, hi. Um, hey. Actually, that's kind of what I was going to ask. Did they know um, how long to expect? Like, because, or maybe they were becoming impatient because they didn't know how long to expect. Excellent question. Wait. Excellent question. No, they knew they knew it was going to be forty days. They knew okay. for, they knew the number, and they just were literally off by a day. Rhoda, go ahead. Well, what, from what we just read, they. Um, they went to Aaron to say, where is Moses? He hasn't come back. But we didn't read that they said we want to build a golden calf. It was, it was Aaron who said to get the gold and so on. So 
They asked. Excellent question. Excellent question. Why does he bring up the gold? They said to him, if you recall in the text, they said, where's Moses? Now make for us a God because Moses is no longer here. So they actually indicated their intention to create some sort of deity or idol or image. They were the ones that suggested it. Um, According to the commentaries, um, uh, Aaron jumps to the gold and says from your wives because he knew that the women would never give up their jewelry to create an idol. It would never happen. They didn't realize that the men would, would gather up their own gold and, uh, and, 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 and circumvent that stipulation. And again, it got out of control. These are good, very good questions, but I, I don't want to get stuck on the Aaron piece. They're all good questions. Um, but let's, yeah, Joy, go ahead. So my question is, is at the beginning of the verse, and it's the change in language. So uh, we, you just got through reading where they were all there. It was mass revelation. They saw with their own eyes, etc. And the verse says, right after they say, arise, make us a God, for this man, Moses, who brought us up from the land of Egypt, after you just told us that they just heard that Hashem said, I am Hashem who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So where is this Moses thing coming from? Like within excellent. 30 days? Excellent, excellent. It seems that they're attributing Exodus to a human being, which then is a slippery slope. If we don't have that figure, we got to have another figure where God was telling them 40 days prior, don't focus on the figures, don't focus on the images. It's all me. Excellent point. Excellent point. All right, what else? Who else? would like to jump in. Jerry, go ahead. I, I, I'm listening to all of this, and I'm thinking, all right, all right, so they know Moses is gone for 40 days and 40 nights, and as soon as that alarm rings, and they go, it time's up, where's Moses? Why was there no, why couldn't you tell people, just be, be a little patient, he'll be back, he'll be back tonight. Have you ever met Jews? What kind of question is that? Have you met? I understand, but this is a group of people who have just come out of Egypt. There are they are seven weeks out of out of slavery, and they got places to go. They're busy. (laughs) But what's going on in that during that forty day period that makes rebellion? Excellent. So easy to do. Excellent. That's my question. That's exactly my question. And that's the question that we're going to mainly focus on. And we will also address a lot of the other points that have been brought up. And I'm going to go to the chat in a moment because there's some interesting things in the chat as well. And I want to, I want to read some of that also. But, Jerry, your question. First of all, why weren't they more patient? And I joked about Jews. It's not, I don't know if it's a joke. I mean, look, it's, I guess everyone's impatient. But also, listen, I, I, how do I know this? You go to a simcha, you know, before BC, before COVID, right? And you get to the point where everyone's lining up for the shmorg. If the caterer doesn't come out to open up the top fast enough, you have an angry mob of Jews that are probably ready to create some sort of form of a golden calf at that point. It, you, you could have mass rebellion on your hands if you're getting in the way between, between uh, Jews and, 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 and the, uh, the shmorg. But my point is like this. Right. Um, all joking aside, your question is, well, how could they? 
turn in 40 days to, to drop to such a place where they were so desperate and so, so rebellious and so, you know, against God, that's, that's going to be my question. Um, and we'll get there in a second. Let me just quickly take a look at some uh, chats, uh, recent ones. They miscount because, as it said, 40 days, 40 nights, but they started counting at the first night. They started counting... Day one, Moses went up in the daytime. They counted that day as one when that day did not have its preceding night, which means that that day would not be counted at all. That was day zero. Day one would be the following day that had a night with it. Um, if God didn't want them to worship the calf, why would God let the calf be made? Ah, uh, ah, uh, good. So God, if God's in control and somehow the calf comes out magically and they worship it, so couldn't God put a stop to it? Excellent. Excellent question. And we may get an answer to it tonight. But even without tonight, I would say typically, typically, God doesn't foil the bad ideas of human beings. Let's just put it that way. God typically, I know Egypt and plagues, definitely human beings were foiled. Their plans were foiled and things were, and destiny was altered forever. But typically, God does not, every time somebody has a bad idea, God does not intervene. I mean, you could also ask with regards to um, Adam and Eve. Why does God create the tree? Why does God allow the tree to be eaten? Why doesn't God intervene? Why did God allow the serpent to be so uh, convincing? And why did God allow Cain and Abel to, uh, Cain to kill Abel? So it's a, it's a good question, but typically God doesn't step in and stop people from making mistakes. Um, but we'll see also a deeper, a deeper meaning for tonight, uh, in tonight's context. Stan, go ahead. Oh, one second, one second, one second. One, one second. The question is asked, though, but if the calf came out magically, okay, I know I use the word magically. It's a little bit, it, 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 there was, very briefly, when Joseph's bones were being collected upon the exodus from Egypt, Joseph was buried at the bottom of the Nile River. Moses wrote on the night of the, of the exodus on a piece of paper, Shar, rise ox because Joseph is compared to an ox. And at that point, Joseph's coffin rises in the Nile to the surface, and Moses collects the body, collects the remains of Joseph, and takes him out. Somebody collected that piece of paper that Moses threw on the Nile River that said, Aleishar, rise ox, and put it in their pocket. And then, when they threw the jewelry, day, weeks later, when they threw the jewelry into the fire, they pulled out the pa paper that said, Aleishar, rise ox, into the fire, and that was an amulet that caused and created the, um, the, 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 the ox slash calf, golden calf, to come out to emerge. So was it magic? Yeah. Did God do the magic? I mean, God does everything or God's in control of everything, but no, it was human beings that, that, that perpetrated this. So hopefully that explains why it's magic, but it's also of human doing. Um, uh, Stan, I think you were, yeah. I, I can understand the, the, the concept of uh, God not I intervening. But the, the question I have in reading the text is in so many instances, it seems like that an omniscient God is surprised by the actions of these people, which he frequently defines as stiff-necked. And it happens frequently. You know, that's what I, what I wonder. Why is an omniscient, all-knowing God surprised that these people seem to continuously uh, uh, go astray. Why are you surprised if God keeps on getting surprised? You should expect it. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I don't want to use your own question against you. No, um, yeah, I hear you. I hear you. Nonetheless, is God surprised? Like, we're surprised? Probably not. But God's like, what are you going to do? People. So, uh, so there you go. That's, uh, that's what's going on. You know, it's, um, I, it's a good question. It's a good question. God definitely knows what's going on. God knows because there's no past, present, or future with God. 
Um, nonetheless, it's uh, maybe disappointing instead of surprising, use a different word. Either way, it's, it's, it's not what we should be doing. My question on this story is the basic question, which I'm sure all of you could have asked, but you were being nice to ask other questions which added to our repertoire. But my question is the basic question, which is the question we've been asking all along, essentially, which is how they do that. How could they do that? Why do they do that? Are you kidding me? What are they doing? What are they thinking? 40 days after Sinai, after hearing God and seeing God and the revelation, the experience, mass experience of revelation, after all of that, to go ahead and violate one, two, three, maybe four commandments in one fell swoop seems even for a very prolific Sinner seems very, very skilled, seems very, very um, brazen. How could they have fallen so low so fast, as Jerry asked before? How could they have 40 days later gone off the rails so hard, so fast, so far? How is it even possible? And not only that, I'm going to up the ante another few notches. I'm going to do it very quickly, though because we have a lot of Kabbalah to get to. Not only did they go off the rails, they destroyed something that was going to be so incredible. And this is something that you, you've likely never heard before because it's not one of these teachings that everyone knows. And what, what our sages tell us in the Medrash is that at Mount Sinai, God hit the reset button on the world, on creation, reverting it back to the state that it was in the Garden of Eden. You know what that means? You remember lesson one. Remember what happened, in the, what was going to be in, in, in the Garden of Eden? Let's talk about um, lifespan, right? Unmute yourself. Tell me the lifespan as of uh, Garden of Eden. What was meant to be the lifespan? Never. Eternal life. Eternal life. That was reset at Sinai. And you know what the sin of the golden calf did? It plunged it back into mortality, into death. It returned death to the scene. They had everything. They had paradise reclaimed. And they lost it again. And that ups the question, how could they have done such a thing? And how could they have lost such a golden opportunity with such a golden calf? Take a look at what I just told you outside. I'm going to read it inside very quickly. The Medrash says, and if you want to say, it's in your books, text 7, page 151. This is the meaning of what's written in Psalms. I said you are divine that you're the, and that supernal beings you all are. But instead, I'm retranslating it. Instead, like Adam, you will die. That's what God said at Sinai. Had the people of Israel waited for Moses and not done that deed of the golden calf, neither exile nor the angel of death would have any power over them. Thus it is written, the writing was the writing of God, charut, engraved on the tablets. What is the meaning of charut? Not just engraved, but charut, freedom from exile, and charut, freedom from the angel of death. When the people of Israel proclaimed, all that God has spoken, we will do and we will hear. God said, I commanded one mitzvah to Adam for him to fulfill, and I likened him to, to the ministering angels. This people who fulfill 613 mitzvot, is it not fitting that they should live and exist forever? But when they proclaimed to the golden calf, this is your God, O Israel, they once again became mortal. Friends, they lost it all. Said God, you followed in the ways of Adam. 
the first man, who did not hold out for three hours. And on the ninth hour of that day, death was decreed on him. I said, you are divine. But because you followed in Adam's path, you couldn't hold on for one half a day. Indeed, like Adam, you will die. I hope this medrash is coming through in its full force. Essentially, essentially, God was planning and not only was planning, but had rolled it out and put the wheels into motion. That at Sinai, when the people accepted, Nasa, we will do, we will accept. God said, if Adam accepted one mitzvah, and he was Adam, living forever, these people now accept 613 mitzvot. They're set, made in the shade, and they lost it all with the golden calf, which only strengthens our question. They saw what they saw. They experienced what they experienced. They had the greatest gift in their hands. And they fumbled it away on the goal line. They fumbled it in the 11th hour. How did they mess up so badly? How, how, they couldn't hold on one more day? 40 days later, they were already off the rails. What's going on? My friends, to understand this, we need to continue this story with Act 3. If you want to know what the three parts of the story are, part, part one of the story was Sinai. Part two was the breaking of the tablets, the sin of the golden calf and the breaking of the tablets. And part three is the giving of the second set of tablets. Let me explain. Right after the sin of the golden calf, Moses gets to work. Because not only is Moses the, 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 the one who facilitates the exodus and who went up the mountain 40 days and 40 nights, but he's also the advocate. He's also the defense attorney for the Jewish people. So he goes up on the mountain another 40 days and 40 nights, this time not to hear Torah from God, but to advocate and defend and ask for forgiveness for the Jewish people. He's up there 40 days. He comes down. He goes back up another 40 days and 40 nights. And at the end of the third set of 40 days, the original 40 days plus two additional sets of 40 days, 120 days after that first revelation at Sinai, Moses returns finally. And that day is Yom Kippur, by the way, the Day of Atonement. Moses comes back down the mountain for the final time with a new set of tablets. Let's read this inside. This will be text number eight. I'm going to share my screen and read the text. Text number eight. God said to Moses, Carve yourself two stone tablets like the first. And I will write upon the tablets the words which were on the first tablets, which you broke. So Moses carved two stone tablets like the first. And Moses rose early in the morning and he ascended Mount Sinai as God had commanded him. And he took in his hand two stone tablets. And he was there with God, oh, like I told you, for 40 days and 40 nights. This was the third time. And he wrote on the tablets, and God wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments, and then Moses comes down. At the end of those 40 days and 40 nights, on day 120, Yom Kippur, he comes down with a second set of tablets. I have a very specific question for you. If you have a book, you can look inside. If you're relying on the screen, well, I've just taken that away, so now you have to use your memory, which ups the ante. Here's my question. What difference did you discover, did you notice, between the first set of tablets and the second. Wait, wait, one second. Now, don't tell me that the first were broken and the second were not, because, yeah, fine. But in addition to that, what's the difference between tablets one, <laughs> the first generation of tablets, and the second generation of tablets? Jay, you were first. Go ahead. God, God inscribed the first set of tablets, and they were holy, and actually the tablets were supported by God. 
and his writing. The second set was inscribed by Moshe. Now, one set, good. So, but, but, what, but one clarification, because I, I must clarify something, I'm sharing my screen again. Look at the second tablets. Look at the second tablets. God says, carve yourself two stone tablets like the first. What does that mean? That Moses is to hew the stone, to cut out the stone from the quarry, and then God says, who's going to write on the tablets? God says, I will write on the tablets. And then look, Moses carved, Moses carved, carved the tablets. And, um, and, and look at line 13 right here. And he, with a capital H, God wrote on the tablets. So just to clarify, both first tablets and second tablets, God did the writing. So what's the difference, though? The difference is who supplied, who supplied the stone. Who supplied the stone? In the, first, in the first set of tablets, who supplied the stone? It was God. God supplied the stone and the writing. The second tablets, it was Moses who supplied the stone, and God did the writing. But yes, there is a bit of a difference there. Good. Next, who else has got a difference? Mindy. The, but even though God wrote both of them, the first one was in God's handwriting. I think the second one... God wrote it through the hand of Moses. I think it was Moses' hand that wrote it, right? it. If you look at the verse, it says that God wrote it, God inscribed it. In both cases, God did the writing. But the but question is... This one says we got God's handwriting. We, and, and now that those are broken, we don't, we don't have that opportunity to have God's handwriting. I, I, I think that was... I, I hear you, but again, the, the second tablet does not say that it was Moses' handwriting. It says that God did the inscribing. So based on the verses... I don't know that we can assume that God didn't do the writing because it says that he did the writing. So let's assume, let's take the verses at, at face value and say that the difference is not the writing per se, but the actual stones, where the stones came from. I'm not saying there's no difference. I'm saying there is a difference, but on a more nuanced, and the reason why I'm trying to specify this is because as we get to the Kabbalah of the distinction, which we're, which we're headed toward, we're going to see that this distinction becomes very, very important. That in both cases, it's still God's writing. But the difference is, who's supplying the stone? Who's supplying the material? Who's supplying the medium? Right? That becomes a critical distinction. Okay? I have a question. Yeah, go ahead. The first set of stones, no matter which way you looked at the writing, it was in the correct position. Right. But I don't think that was the case... Because that was a divine influence, but I don't think that was the case in the second set of stones. Good, good. So you're saying there's a mirror, the, the, our sages report a miracle that the stones were actually carved, engraved through and through, not just like an inch deep into like the stone. A was being held up right, so a letter that has, that's a full circle, like a samach or a final mem, so it was all the way through in the interior of that engraving, if you will, like if you imagine, right? If you, if you take a piece of paper and you make a square, Right, and you carve out a square so that middle section should fall down. But in the tablets, it, 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 it was suspended. So the question on the table is, and I saw, I think David also wrote this in the chat, is did that miracle also exist in the second set of tablets or not? It's a good question. But again, without, do, without getting into that specific, that, that specific of a level of understanding, on a basic level, the Torah tells us that, the, that both were written by God. The difference is who supplied the material, which medium it flowed through, either was God's or was Moses. There's another distinction. Yeah, Susan, go ahead. Hold on. Uh, unmute yourself. Make sure to, to unmute. You got I'm it. I'm thinking that 
God was angry with what he saw with the, the dancing around the calf. And this gave him some time to cool off. So, so we had an, a, a good 80 days in between, 40 days and then another 40 days, until God inscribed it. So that gave God a chance to, uh, to, to, to be okay with, with giving a second chance. Good, good. What, though, what distinctions do we have between first tablets and second tablets? I want to mention three distinctions. One was already mentioned, but here we need to, to look at, 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 a, at a few. Oh, actually, I'm sorry. You know what? And Susan, you, you mentioned the second distinction. I'm actually going to use your distinction first. Okay? You ready? Tablets one, when they originally were given, before they were shattered, when God originally gave Moses the first set of tablets on Mount Sinai, everything, I'm going to use an, an older expression, everything was hunky-dory. You know that expression, hunky-dory? It means A-OK. That's also a little bit, uh, yeah. Everything was cool. That's also outdated. Whatever. Everything was amazing. The world was perfect. The people were perfect. They had just agreed. They were given eternal life. Everything was amazing. All was good. So the first tablets were created in an atmosphere of everything's good. Perfection. And the second tablets... They emerge in a world, in an atmosphere where there's a lot of imperfection. They're born of and through and in a moment of sin. Now, maybe not the immediate moment and the aftermath of that moment, but they are a child of sin, so to speak. The first tablets are a child or a product of perfection. The second are a product of error. That's one difference. Second difference is what we talked about before. The first tablets were created and written by God. The second tablets created by Moses, written by God. Now, if, if you just take these two distinctions, just these two, right? If you take these two distinctions and think about them for a moment, and I ask you a question, rank the two tablets in order of greatness. Which set of tablets were greater? Tablets one or tablets two? You would think, well... First tablets are born of perfection, second of sin. Well, sounds like a no-brainer. First tablets have all, all by God. Second has some input by Moses, a mortal. Got to go with the first set of tablets. Like, if you have a choice, let's say the first tablets weren't broken. If you have a choice, like I have two sets of tablets for you, take whichever one you want. Which one are you going for? You're going for tablets one, my friend. I know you're going for tablets one. Because tablets one seem to be on a much higher level, correct? They're by God, completely created by God, the stone and the writing. They're born in a time of perfection. All is great. And yet, we have another distinction between first tablets and second tablets, which turns the entire story on its head and provides the key to unlocking this entire mystery, the third distinction. Let's do this right now. I'm going to share my screen with you. I'm going to read two texts, one from the Midrash and one from the Talmud, that don't make any sense. I'm sorry for being so crude. I don't mean don't make any sense, but are hard to understand. Text 9. Take a look. Said God to Moses, Don't be distressed over the first tablets, which contained only the Ten Commandments. In the second tablets, I'm, also, I'm giving you also Halacha, Midrash, and Agada. 
What's God saying? God's saying, don't worry about the loss of the first tablets. No big deal. I got something better for you because the first tablets only contain the Ten Commandments, but these second tablets contain more. Number one, what's going on here? Number two, how did the second tablets contain halacha, midrash, and agada? What does that even mean? What? How big were these second tablets? It had all of Jewish law. It had all of the midrash. It had all, agada means like the, uh, the homiletical teachings. It had all of that stuff in it. Or midrash is homily. Agadas are like the stories. It had all of that, the, or, the whole oral Torah in, 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 on the tablets. What does that even mean? Nothing about text nine makes sense at first glance. But let's keep on going. Talmud tracked in a darim. Had Israel not sinned with the golden calf, they would have received only the five books of Moses and the book of Joshua. Why? Because as the verse says in Kohelet, Ecclesiastes, much wisdom comes through much grief. The fact that we have more Torah, we have much more than five books of Moses and Joshua. We have the rest of the, we have another nine. Uh, we have another 18 books of scripture. Then we have the Midrash, we have the Mishnah, we have the Talmud, we have Halacha, we have Agada. We have the entire spectrum and body of, of the oral Torah. We have all this stuff. It all comes from the sin of the golden calf. And it's presented in both text 9 and 10 as a positive. And now I turn to you. And I ask you the question that I ask myself right now, as we're up to, which we're up to in this stage of the class, which is, what in the world is going on? We thought we had it figured out. We thought that everything was good at Sinai. And they had it all made in the shade. And they had a tablets, first set of tablets that were perfect by God, with God's writing, with God's tablets, the stone itself. Everything was perfect. And then they messed up. And they lost it all. And eternal life was doomed. And mortality is revisited. And they got a second set. But you know what? Now it's with some Moses' input. And now it's born of sin and not perfection. But then you turn around and say, but you know what these tablets came with? They came with more Torah. And now I'm confused. Because I thought this was a downgrade. And now you're telling me it's an upgrade. What kind of upgrade? Number one, what kind of upgrade? And number two, how do you get an upgrade from a sin? And so let me give you the answer. This is what Kabbalah says. But to understand the answer, we have to know what is the written Torah and what's the oral Torah. And what does it mean had the Jewish people not sinned, they would have only had the five books of Moses or we would have only had the Ten Commandments as the measure says. What does that even mean? It's a good statement. But if you think about it, try to make sense of it. It's a great catchphrase. You would have only had Ten Commandments, but now you have more. No. What does that mean? No halacha. No Midrash, no Agadah, no Oral Torah without the breaking of the tablets. What does that even mean? Very simple. What's the difference between the written Torah and the Oral Torah? Well, I'll tell you. The written Torah is not just the five books of Moses. That's not what I mean. The written Torah represents what God commanded and dictated to Moses and that Moses wrote down. And you know what the Oral Torah is? the stuff that we have had to figure out on our own because it wasn't fully written out. Because in between all that is written down in the Torah from God, there's a lot of gray area. 
and there are a lot of cases, and there are a lot of questions that aren't directly addressed. And we have to use the tools and the framework and the foundations that we were given to extrapolate, to decipher, to decode. For example, in Jewish law, what would the case be in such and such case? Or what, sorry, what would the law be? What would Torah say in such and such case? That law, that case is not discussed in the immediate book, in the immediate Torah, in the written law, so to, in the written Torah, so to speak. God didn't tell Moses that this is the law in this case. We have to use our own mind to infer it. So I'll ask you, that's the difference between the written law and the oral law, generally. The written Torah is what God told Moses, what he dictated to Moses, the laws that came straight from God. And the oral Torah is what we've derived based on divinely originating methodology, so the methodology is not ours, but the derivation is ours. That's the oral law. So now I'm going to ask you one more question. Why is there a need for the oral law in the first place? Why didn't God just tell Moses everything? Why is there a need for any oral law, any rabbinic tradition? Why not? Why didn't God just tell Moses everything? And the classic answer, and I've given you this answer before in other classes, is because then the book would have been too big. But come on, God couldn't have figured out a way, right? God couldn't have compressed it somehow. We couldn't have used, uh, you know, some sort of digital files. God could have figured it out. What? It's a practical consideration. It would have been too long for God to give to Moses. It would have taken too much time. Practical stuff? That's, a, that's not a good answer. It's not a great answer. It's an answer that's given, but it's not a great answer. Furthermore, I'm going to up the ante. What's the difference whether it would have come from Moses or it would have come through another prophet? I'm going, to give, I'm going to explain what I mean. Why isn't the system that God continuously communicates with prophets and God at any generation, any time, when a question comes up, there's a prophet, turns to, like Moses did in the Torah, tur- with the daughter of Tzalafchad and other cases, laws of inheritance, God, what's the law in this case, gets the message and gives it to us. Why isn't that the system? Why is the system that God communicated what he communicated and that's it? And now we have to use the tools to derive it on our own, and we call that orator. Why did God stop talking? You know what the answer is? You know the answer. We've been talking about the answer the whole time. Because what happened when God did all the talking? We did the walking. We walked away. That's what happened. Because when something comes top-down from the outside in, it doesn't create change. You know it and I know it. Someone tells you what you need to do, you know what you do? Yeah, sure, yeah, sure, whatever. And 40 days later, you're doing what you want to do. At Sinai, and here's the big idea, this is the whole class right here. At Sinai, the Jewish people had the greatest revelation in history. The greatest, most awe-inspiring moment in history. And you know what changed? Nothing. Because no one gets changed from the outside in. Change happens from within. You know the, um, the, the joke, how many Buddhists does it, ta- does it take to change a light bulb? None, because change happens from within. Yeah, it's not only a Buddhist joke, it's also a Jewish joke. Because, because Judaism also believes. The Torah also declares, this is the entire story. The Torah is telling us, straight up, you want change, you have to own it. If it's coming from above, there's not going to be change. You can impose, but that's not change, right? If you impose and you impose hard enough, the other person might conform to the imposition. Is that change? 
That's not change because relieve the pressure and the person reverts back to their status quo. At Sinai, we saw it all. We experienced it all. It was amazing. And 40 days later, we were back to where we were and our old habits from Egypt, worshiping idols. Yeah, the Jewish people also worshiped idols in Egypt. They were around idols in Egypt. And there are plenty of discussions on that, but not for now. Trust me on this. Nothing changed at Sinai. Nothing changed. Which is, by the way, why Sinai is not a holy, a holy place in Judaism. You know that, right? We don't even know where Mount Sinai is. But even if you found it, it's not hallowed ground. When was the last time you heard of Jews making pilgrimage to Mount Sinai for, for a holy day of prayer and study? Let me guess. Never, right? Because it's not holy. You know why it's not holy? Because the ground never became holy. You know why? Because it never had an impact. All of that spectacle is spectacle. And it lifts you up. But it drops you just as fast. 40 days later, my only question is why did it take 40 days? You and I know what that's like. You and I know exactly what that's like. You get inspired. Your life has changed until the next morning and you're back to business. You're back to the status quo. Because nothing changes from the outside in. And that's what you have with the first tablets. Only the written Torah. Had there never been a sin, there would have only been the written Torah, the Ten Commandments. What does that mean? It was all top-down, top-down, top-down. What happened with the sin? What happened with the sin was it was clear that top-down doesn't work. So what happens? Torah 2.0, tablets 2.0. And you know what that is? Ground up, inside out, user-driven, user-owned Torah. That's what we call oral Torah. So when the Talmud says, that what happens with the sin of the golden calf, right? No pain, no gain. Much wisdom is, 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 is gained through much grief. We got more Torah. What does that mean? We would have had the Torah anyway. Same amount, but it would have come from God. But now we have it and it comes from us and we own it. And that's an indication that we're changed. The effect happens when we fight for it, when we own it. When you're the one that needs to derive the law, because the law is unclear and you realize how to derive the law, guess what you're going to do? You're probably going to follow that law because it's yours. Somebody tells you what to do? Not so much. So the second tablets are greater than the first. Why? The first were, yeah, they were pure. They were holier. There was more spectacle. Yeah, but because of that, they didn't last. Because of that, they necessarily didn't last. That can't last. It's not sustainable. How long can you ride a high? How long does a high last? No high lasts forever. You know that and I know that. This explains every detail of the story. Every detail is explained by understanding the difference between the first tablets and the second tablets. First tablets, top down. Second tablets, bottom up. First tablets, imposed from God on us. This is what I want you to do. And we said, sure, yes, absolutely. And when God wasn't looking, or when we thought God wasn't looking, we're breaking out the secret golden calf. And you know what I'm talking about. We all do this. But when it's from the inside out, when it's us, then it's real. In our lives, we have this experience all the time. The birth of a child. I will never leave this child's side. I, me and this child are always inseparable until the next day that you have to go to work. Right? And stay late at work. Um, experience, God forbid, a loss of a loved one. 
I will forever love and hug my family and friends until the next petty argument over nothing happens. What happened to the clarity? What happened to the epiphany? What happened to that certainty that you knew that it would always be good? What happened? So what happened? What happened was, that was never real. It felt real. It felt real. A hundred percent, it felt real. Yes, it felt real. It felt transformative. It felt amazing. It felt uplifting. But it wasn't you. It happened to you. It wasn't you. Yeah? You want to be there for your child? There's no shortcut. I'm so inspired to be there with my child. Be there with your child. You want to be, you want to hug a loved one? Hug a loved one. There's nothing that's going to impose that from the outside. It's the work, the daily work to make what we want to be to happen. And so what this story tells us is actually a fundamental human truth that we are still learning. 3,332 years later, we still haven't fully accepted this. Because we get duped all the time. We're like, what happened? It was so good. Where did it go? It happens all the time. We get duped because we're convinced that the high is going to last. It doesn't last unless we do the work. This is the difference between the first tablets and the second tablets. Torah 1.0 and Torah 2.0. Revelation at Sinai was amazing, but not It didn't change anything. The tablets, the first tablets were amazing. They had to be broken. Too much top-down, too much top-down influence. It has to be bottom-up. It has to come from us. And so we fought for it, and Moses fought for us. And God gave us an opportunity. The second tablets were not now completely created by God. Yes, God is ultimately the author, but we provide the medium. We're the ones that 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 are... If not doing the writing, we're providing the stone. We're the ones that are providing, we're we're making the material happen upon which this this law is being written. In other words, if we want to line up that detail with what I explained about the oral law, ultimately the mechanics by which the oral law is derived is utilizing the framework that God gave us. So it's ultimately the writing of God, but it's our work that's making it happen. And because of that, it's real. Because of that, we're still here. That's why we're still here, because God turned it over to us. If God was continuously throughout all the generations saying, this is what you need to do, and this is what I'm telling you, and this is what you have to, this is what has to happen, don't do this, do that, you know what we would say? We said that. We danced around the golden calf. Got the, God, God got the message and said, all right, you own it. I, I can't, I can't, it's not working. You own it. Of course, God is still instructing but we're, we're, we're participating, we're owning it. Does this make sense? Yes? Making sense? Okay. Yeah, light and vessels. Topped out? Yes. This, you'll find that this is a consistent theme in many of the lessons. Two modalities, top down, bottom up. Right? Ghana Aid in Paradise, the world emerging from sin. Right, the flood, the, there's a lot of the, the, this, this dual model that runs through these classes, but each one expressed in its own way in its own narrative. Here's the idea here. There are moments in our lives that we get inspired. The Torah is teaching us 
not to rest on our laurels. Don't just ride out the wave. But if you find yourself being uplifted, now it's time to climb the mountain. Put in the effort to climb to make sure that you're there. It says in Psalms, who can ascend the mountain of God and who can stand in his holy place? Who can ascend? Sometimes you get lifted up there. But who can stand? Who can remain standing? That's the real question. Who feels inspired in Yom Kippur? Everybody. But who can maintain that inspiration? In two weeks, in three weeks, I'm being nice, the next morning, who can maintain that inspiration? Only if we do the work. There's no shortcut. You fell in love. You got to do the work. Right? You felt the truth. You got to do the work. That's the message. Don't rely on the light show. The light, this, the... The, the show, that's, it's not about the show, it's about the work. By the way, that doesn't mean that the first tablets were a mistake. That doesn't mean that Sinai was a mistake. On the contrary, I need to share this text with you. Here's what the Talmud says about this. Take a look. And we're melding Talmud and Kabbalah together, and it's, I hope you're appreciating the, uh, the perspective of this class. Uh, not text 11, let's keep on going. Not text 12. Text 13. The Talmud in Tractate Menachot says, both... The second tablets and the first broken tablets were kept in the Holy Ark of the Covenant. And I need to tell you what this means. The Ark was the holy space. And what the Talmud is telling us, that not only were the second tablets there, not only you're climbing the mountain is holy, but the first tablets, we want to now reclaim the first tablets. Because I don't want you to walk away from this class saying that inspiration is overrated and it's all about the work. We also need the inspiration because it's those moments of inspiration that inspire us to do the work. If we never had the inspiration, we would never know what it's like at, top of the mount- at the top of the mountain. We get lifted up top of the- to the top of the mountain to then see what we're meant to be climbing toward. Do you understand what I'm saying? Does it make sense? We have those moments of upliftedness. We have those moments of clarity, those epiphanies, so that we know what we're climbing toward. But then we have to do the work. So we need a Yom Kippur. We need a day that's a holy day. We need a day that's completely dedicated to soul and not body. But that's only one day a year. The other 364 days, we do the work. We need the day of a wedding. We need the day of a birth, right? And other days that fill us with, with a clarity and, 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 and priorities. We need those moments of inspiration. And then we need to do the work. Both tablets are holy. It was not a mistake that God revealed himself at Sinai to us. It was not a mistake that we got the first tablets. It was by design. Let's not think that God got it wrong, that method 1.0 is fundamentally irrelevant and we only needed 2.0. You need 1.0, top down, and then 2.0. You have to know where you can climb before you climb. If you never knew there's a mountain top, then why would you even begin the journey? So Sinai showed us what's possible, a clarity of God, a clarity of purpose, a clarity of vision. And now God says, smash, you build it, you recreate it. I showed you where you're going to go, now you go and do it. I gave, you the, I gave you the map, now you walk that trail, you climb that mountain. You can't climb it if you never saw it. Sinai was not a mistake. God didn't get it wrong. God didn't restart it because it recalibrate because the first method didn't work. It was obviously originally by design. You get lifted up and then 
you fall down, but now you know where you're climbing back toward. Does this make sense? Yes? First tablets and second tablets are both holy and they're both in the ark. In summation. In summation. We now understand the entire arc of the story. We understand every detail of the story. We understand why we were gathered at Mount Sinai, why God revealed himself to us, why we felt so uplifted because we needed at least at one point in our lives, at one point in human history, we had to know, we had to see the truth. But seeing, although it's believing, seeing doesn't always last because you can see something and you know it's true, but without doing the work, without doing the work, it doesn't last. So our question at the beginning was, if they saw it, they saw it with their own eyes. Why didn't it last? And you know what the answer is? The question is the answer. Because they saw it with their own eyes. And that's all they did. They just saw it. It happened to them. And if it happens to you, it doesn't last. They saw a show. Wonderful. The concert was great. The sermon was great. The experience was great. What a spread at the bar mitzvah. What a wonderful wedding. Mazel tov. You experience it. You saw it. You observed it. Nice. But there's no change. And the final analysis, hearing, is what creates the change. If you have to create it, the difference between seeing and hearing is seeing you see the thing. Hearing is you hear about it, but you have to then recreate it in your mind. You with me on this? If you read a book and you read about the characters, what do they look like? You have to do the work. But because you do the work, you own it. Are you with me in the distinction between seeing and hearing? Yeah? So before, in the beginning of the class, we talked about the advantage of seeing over hearing. And hearing was, pff, we wiped the floor with hearing. Now we're saying that the way that things are truly sustainable is more along the lines of a hearing model and not a seeing model. Sane was seeing, and that's why its inspiration had an expiration date. About 40 days, give or take. But hearing on our own, doing the work, living the life, there's no substance. You want to find God? You got to work for it. You gotta, there's no magic sauce, no magic pill, no magic beans. You want to find God in your life? What are you willing to do? What are you willing to give up? What are you willing to take on? It's a simple question. It's not a, I'm not challenging. It's a simple question. What am I willing to do today? I want something to happen to me. We had that. It didn't work. Nothing's going to happen that changes anything. It's what are we willing to do to find God in our lives? That's the question. That's the challenge. We also need the inspiration, inspirational experiences. We also need Sinai ex experiences, tablet one experience. We need that. But we can't rely on that, and that doesn't change us. What changes us? Yeah, you know the answer. It's us. We change ourselves. That's it. That's, that's, that's it. That's it. We change ourselves. And God was giving us with the second tablets. God hands his torch over to us and says, now you, now you create it. You create the stones. You create the tablets. You make it happen. And that's what we've been doing for 3,332 years. This message is for us in our inspiration. And this is also a message for us in dealing with others. If we want to inspire others, let's remember, it can't happen from the outside in. We can't impose inspiration or guidance or education or instruction or mentoring or leadership on anyone else. We can only show them where they can go 
and help them in any way do the work that they need to do to achieve it. It's a truth in life. You can't do the work for anyone else. You can inspire them. You can be a good role model. You can show them, but you can't do the change. You can do the work, but you can't do the change for someone else. Let's emulate God's model. Let's be there for others when they need, as they need. Let's be an inspirational role model for others. But let's always encourage the other, whether it's a child, whether it's a colleague, whether it's whoever it is, a mentee, a student. Let's always encourage the other and remind the other that there's no substitute for the work they need to do. As we wrap up today's class, let's remember that when we help someone realize both of their sets of tablets, both the inspiration and the work, we will truly have been a blessing in their lives. And that's something that they and we can truly be thankful for. Thank you for joining me tonight for lesson number five of Secrets of the Bible. I hope, you un- I hope it made sense. I hope you were inspired by it. But please do not let the inspiration end with the closing of the Zoom meeting. Remember, it's not, it's also about the inspiration, but it's about what comes after. What is the resolution that you will take, that you will make as we, you know, secular calendar is fine. If it's for inspiring, we can always use things in a positive. The end of the year is approaching. What, ins- what commitments can we make for a better life, a more connected life, and a more divine life, a more, a more Torah life, a more mitzvah life? All right, so next week, that's it for today. Things to think about. Um, next week, I know, I know, it's, uh, I'm also feeling a little sad. It's our sixth and final lesson. I know, I know, I wish this could keep on going. But we have our sixth and final lesson next week. Same bad time, same bad channel. The topic is Korach's Rebellion. Family. Who said if you don't believe in ghosts, you've never been to a family reunion? Yeah, family is sometimes complicated. Can't live with them. Can't live without them. In our final session, we are going to explore the incredible, unbelievable story of Korach, the cousin of Moses and Aaron, who wanted to topple everything. Why was Korach so opposed to their leadership? Is leadership inherently a positive thing or negative thing? How might we transform um, conflict or difference from conflict to harmony? Join me next week for the powerful conclusion of Secrets of the Bible as we uncover the Kabbalah of Korach's coup. Coming up next week. All right, I'm staying on for questions or comments. Feel free to stay on, or if you have to jump off, Lila Tov. Um, oh, oh, quick announcement, very important announcement. Thank you. Very important announcement to make right before we, we, we finish and, and I take questions. Scheduling announcement. I, I mentioned that this course is ending, but I have another course, two more courses. Well, I can keep on going, but okay, I'm, I'm limited to two that, I, that I'm going to mention. The week after we conclude, so in other words, this concludes December 1st, next week, December 1st, and then December 8th, the week after that, we're starting a brand new four-part Talmud course. I'm not teaching it, but there's a rabbi, local rabbi here in Atlanta, who just moved to town, Rabbi Mendel Jacobson. He is an incredible scholar. Um, he just moved a few months ago, and he is going to be teaching a four-part series on Talmud. You are going to love it. He's an incredible teacher. And it's going to be a four-part series, 8 p.m., Tuesday nights, right here on Zoom. Uh, so join us for that. You can find more information on our website, intownjewishacademy.org, slash 
Talmud for all the details. So that's one announcement. Second announcement, the next six-week JLI course that I will be teaching is coming up in January, and it's called Journey of the Soul. Journey of the Soulish. No, Journey of the Soul, and it is a six-part series on the soul and everything connected with the soul. So you do not want to miss this. It's starting in January. It is also approved for those that this might be beneficial for. It's approved for CME credits for doctors. It's, 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 um, it gives professional, sorry, continuing educational credits for doctors, psychiatrists, psychologists, um, social workers, counselors, uh, therapists, etc. Professional development credits for this course and everyone is invited to join and to share the information. You can find the, find the information on our website. Uh, Adina Malka, Soul Quest. No, that's not that course, Journey of the Soul. Um, you can find the information on our website, intownjewishacademy.org slash journey, I believe. I think we created that URL. All right, good. I think that's it for the announcements. There are more things, but we'll, we'll leave it at that.